define the expectations, whether it's church, whether it's home, whether it's work, whether it's play. I love this leadership maxim and try to practice it regularly. For those of you who are regular attenders, you might remember back in early December, I came up on the stage, I grabbed a stool, and I defined what would be taking place over December here at Ellerslie. I said that on the 18th, we'd be moving from two services to one at 10.30. We were gonna have loads of baptisms, come and cheer. I said that on Christmas Eve, we'd have two identical services. On Christmas Day, there would be one service, but it wouldn't be online. I was defining the expectations. And for many of you, you do this on your own without even realizing it. You might look at your partner or your parents or family members and say, hey, what's the plan for Christmas? And someone would say, oh, we're gonna arrive, we're gonna have lunch at noon, we're going to leave at about eight. And then you look at your partner and say, eight hours with your family? I don't know if I want to handle that much time. But we're defining the expectations. This happens regularly, right? Think about school. The teachers say, hey, I want a 1,000-word essay, and it's going to be due on Friday. Coaches say something like, you miss practice, you don't play. Or even at work, we have the employee handbook. These are the expectations that we expect you to follow. Why bring this up? If you've been attending for any length of time, you know that my sermons have pretty much the same idea. They're about 35 minutes long. I'm going to unpack the scriptures. I'm going to talk about how that impacts your life. And then we're going to talk about how that leads to Jesus. But today, for the first time in the over six years that I've been here, we are doing something radically different. We are doing an apologetic series. And if you're not familiar with this idea of apologetics, there's two ways that it would be defined if you looked it up in the dictionary. One of the ways would be to simply to apologize. You apologize for bringing fruitcake to a Christmas event. That should never be done. But there's also the apologetic that says something like this. Uh, we are going to write or defend a truth that we believe in. I am a LeBron James apologist. I believe he's better than Michael Jordan. We can talk about it in the foyer afterwards. All right. That got a way bigger response in this service than in last service. If you have your ministry catalogs with you, you'll see that uh, on the pastor's page, it says this um, from 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. If you uh, are familiar with apologists, you know that they will typically stand up and they'll talk for about an hour. Maybe they're debating at the local university. Maybe they're um, coming to a, a large church or something like the Windspear Center, and you expect them to come and talk about a given subject. I don't talk for an hour. I'm going to talk for about 35 minutes. And over that time, I'm going to do a few different things. I want to strengthen your faith, and we're going to talk about a particular hot-button topic today as we are for the next month. I want to give you some implications of what does that look like? How does that apply to real life and the situations we live in? And then the third thing I want to do, and it'll be really short at the end, is what does that look like at the very, um, when we apply it in real-life situations? But before we get to that, a couple thoughts. Um, one of them is that if you go back and you see what's uh, our graphic, there's some things there that might kind of set you on edge a little bit. When we made this graphic, we showed a couple people, and they said, we really don't like the gun. Good. Because we're talking about suffering in a few weeks, and it's real, and it's uh, part of what the life that we have. We have a science speaker there. Next week, we're going to look at how does the Bible and science get along and can it get along? We're going to be asking tough questions. But going back to 1 Peter 3.15, look at that last line of that verse. Do this with gentleness and respect. 
No less than seven times in the book of Acts do we have the Apostle Paul, do we read that the Apostle Paul reasoned with people. But he always did so in a way that was loving and and life-changing. Love is going to be our greatest apologetic. There's going to be some times where we're interacting with our friends and they know way more about a subject than we do. There's going to be times where we know more about the subject than they do. Either way, show them incredible love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we are tackling a hot-button topic. And I feel like I'm going to be dancing in a minefield. And so, God, may my words fall down and that your words would be lifted up. And that when the people in the room and the people online don't agree with what I'm saying, may there still be the sense of, I don't agree with Dave, but I feel loved and cared for. Because, God, we believe love is the greatest apologetic. May you lead and guide us, not just today, but over the next month as we tackle some really big issues. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I love sports, and I have been playing soccer for as long as I can remember. But I don't just go and play just for the sake of the love of the game. I go and play because it's one of the rare chances I have to hang out with non-Christians. I'm a pastor. I work with all Christians. I'm involved in different groups and different committees. They're all filled with Christians. And so when it's, uh, I get to play soccer, I finally get to hang out with people who don't always talk about Jesus, don't know who Jesus is, and it's an opportunity for me to develop some good friendships. And I developed this one friend um, through my soccer team, and eventually he broke up with his longtime girlfriend, and he was devastated. And so I said to him, friend, why don't we go out for dinner? My treat, dinner and a movie, it'll be a classic mandate. And he said, yep, I'm in, that'll be a lot of fun. And so we talk about all sorts of things, and eventually he asked me the question, Dave, why are you a pastor? And I thought, there it is, just an opportunity to talk about the gospel. And so I said, well, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and I believe that God is perfect and that we as humanity have fallen short of that perfection, that we've sinned, that we have say things that are negative about other people, that we're proud, that we're arrogant, that we hurt people with our words or our actions. And I believe that because we have fallen apart in our relationship with God, that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, and that whoever believes in him would restore his relationship with God. So here's my soccer teammate looking across the table from me, and he surprises me, and he says, Dave, I completely agree. And I'm like, this is awesome. I just led my friend to Jesus. And then he looks at me and says, but I have no desire to be a Christian. And I said, oh, why is that? And he goes, because I love having sex and getting drunk on weekends. I thought, oh, okay. How do we deal with that? Now, this, these weren't his words. But I think his underlying comment was this. The Bible's view of sex is incredibly restrictive. So what is the Bible's view of sex? And how restrictive is it? Now, this is going to be an incredibly emotional sermon. There's going to be a couple laughs, I hope for sure, but there's also going to be moments where it gets really uncomfortable. Love is the greatest apologetic. I will not be able to cover every topic. I might say things that you completely disagree with, and that's okay. I think it's incredibly important that when we go through not just this idea of sex, but this idea of apologetics in general, that we um, go deeper into this whole idea of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in when we don't always know what to say or what to do. 
If you're um, wondering who to connect with, you can um, connect with us. Uh, You may have just seen the announcements, but 587-912-0002 if you're thinking, I need to walk with somebody through this. I need to know what does this mean? What does this look like? And how do we apply it to our lives? Um, I did jump by the first point really quickly. If you're a note taker, the first point is sexual purity. Sexual purity. So what is the historical, biblical view of when sex is okay? Here's the definition we have. Sex is saved for a husband and wife in a loving, monogamous marriage relationship. Sex is saved for a husband and a wife in a loving, monogamous marriage relationship. I think most people in the room would agree adultery is not okay. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, if your partner cheats on you while you're dating, if your partner cheats on you when you're married, usually that's the end of the relationship. There's some wonderful redemptive stories of people who go through counseling, who um, uh, forgive one another, and then have wonderful marriages afterwards, and we love those stories. But even inside of those stories, we recognize that adultery probably isn't okay. And the Bible's crystal clear on that. In the Ten Commandments, we read very explicitly, you shall not commit adultery. But what happens when we have two consenting adults? They're not married. And they think, what's the big deal about me having sex with this other person? What does it matter? Who does it harm? It doesn't impact anybody. Perhaps you've even uh, heard people say, you know, there's nowhere in the Bible where it explicitly says that premarital sex is forbidden. I've read the Bible. I can't find it anywhere. So obviously it's okay. And there's multiple articles saying why it's okay. So then why is this the historical biblical view of when sex is okay. Let's pick up in um, uh, Mark chapter 10. But at the beginning of creation, says Jesus, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so then they they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let men not separate. Two ideas to point out here. Immediately, God goes back to creation. Jesus says, before sin ever entered the world, it's not two people coming together. It's a man and a woman, the way God initially attended. And the marriage relationship is saved for the man and the woman. Second, notice that Jesus says they become one flesh after marriage. After that initial consummation takes place, not before. That sex is saved for marriage. In John chapter 4, we have a story of the woman at the well. And after Jesus shares with her that he is the Messiah, do you remember what he says next? Go, call your husband and come back. How does the lady respond? I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Did you catch what happened there? The lady says, Jesus, I have no husband. And Jesus almost turns husbanding into a verb. He says that once you come together sexually with another man, you are now husbanding him. He is husbanding you back. And because you aren't married, you aren't in a committed, monogamous marriage relationship, that isn't right. If you're not familiar with the story, something else happens here, though, that's fascinating. Jesus points out to her her sexual sin, but she doesn't get mad at him. She doesn't hit him. She doesn't say, you are totally wrong. She goes back to her town and says to everybody, I think I've met the Messiah. 
that this love and speaking the truth in love is so transforming that this woman goes back to her community and says, you need to come meet this man. I believe he is the son of God. Jumping ahead to Hebrews chapter 13, we read this. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Here we see the scriptures um, not only having a focus on adultery, but also on sexual immorality. The author of Hebrews is saying, keep the marriage bed pure. And he's putting these two ideas side by side. So what are those two ideas? This is going to blur the lines between my first and second point, but I think it's really important to understand. The New Testament is originally written in Greek, and the word for sexually immoral, some of your translations will have the word fornication, is the word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. And this word is used a whopping 40 times in the New Testament. Five of those times is a list of multiple sins. And there's only one sin that's the same each time a multiple list of sins is given. That one sin is pornea. Back in Leviticus chapter 18, we have 30 verses in which uh, Moses says to the people of Israel, here are the sexual sins that you need to stay away from. By the time we get to the New Testament, human ingenuity is thinking, man, we've got other things that we can do as well. And God is saying, okay, let me make this really simple. There's going to be two drawers in this desk. Drawer number one, sex is saved for a husband and wife in a loving, monogamous marriage relationship. This is when sex is okay. This is when sex should take place and have sex as often as you'd like. But there is a second drawer. And he says that second drawer is pornea. That second drawer is when sex is not okay. And so you can almost feel the people saying, yeah, but what about? Nope. But my friends are doing? Nope. But the people in Corinth are? Nope. He says, there's two times that I need to point out to you when sex is okay in that definition and when it is not. There's one more passage of scripture I'd like to point out before we shift gears here, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 through 7. Paul starts these chapters by saying in 5 verse 1, it is actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. In other words, Paul is looking at the church in Corinth and he's going, you are really creative in how you do sex. But it's not just like Paul points at them and says, you are wrong, behave yourselves. He says, allow me to show you the right way to live. This is chapter six. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Very similar to what Jesus said to the Samaritan at the well. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Let me summarize a number of verses into one sentence. Having multiple sexual partners will destroy your soul. And God is here to bring healing to your soul. Having multiple sexual partners will destroy your soul. And God is here to bring healing to your soul. Sex is not just about being physically naked with someone. You've probably heard me say over and over again, the scripture is holistic. Sex is about being not just physically naked, but emotionally naked, relationally naked, spiritually naked with the partner that you are coming to. And that is why it is saved for the, um, for the marriage bed. 
one final verse from chapter seven. If you cannot control yourselves, you should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. All of us in this room, or the vast majority, have been teenagers. We had a libido. We remember, hopefully you still do, we remember what that means and what that looks like. And the scriptures are abundantly clear. Keep it for marriage. Let's shift gears now a little bit and go towards my friend's initial comment. Dave, the Bible seems to be very restrictive when it comes to sex. The British philosopher and mathematician Bertrand Russell, a devout atheist, says the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. Or if we were to play a little game of point-counterpoint, perhaps you've heard of the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he says the feeling of freedom may not actually be freedom at all, but a slavery to our emotions and not something that transcends them. In other words, listen to this, it's the boundaries of marriage that allow for freedom and true sexual expression. It's the boundaries of marriage that allows for freedom and true sexual expression. In his book, The Problem of God, Mark Clark says this, the myth of our culture is that the single life is a life of great sex and the height of pleasure, but that is a lie. One of the things that I enjoy doing when um, having marriage prep with couples is to ask them, how often do you think you'll have sex? I don't want you to give me the answer out loud. I want you to show me on one hand, two hands if necessary, per week, how often do you think you'll have sex? I was um, uh, working with this one couple and the girl says, oh, Dave, we've totally got this. It's like, oh, great. They've discussed it already. And I said, okay, put up your hands. And she puts up a three and he puts up a five. And she goes, what? You want to have sex how often? And he goes, I'm a virgin. I want to have it a lot. Here's the stats. From three different studies, 40% of married people have sex twice a week compared to 20% of single and cohabitating men and women. It is a lie that single people on average have more sex than married people. So married people have sex more often. Is the sex actually better? Starting with the men, 50% of married men are physically and emotionally content versus 38% of cohabitating men. I wish those numbers were higher on both accounts, but it's still higher for the married men. What about the women? Over 40% of married women said their sex life was emotionally and physically satisfying compared to about 30% of single women. Why? Because they know their man isn't going to leave them. What about this? Married women have a much higher rate of having orgasms than unmarried women. Sex is better and happens more frequently in the covenant of marriage. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, has this great line, twice a week seems to be enough to stave off the tempter. I agree, Luther, I agree. Good for you. So what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we actually take this and make it practical? To the married people in the room, I hope this made you smile, but it might also cause a little bit of hurt and pain. Because you look at that Martin Luther quote, or you look at the statistics before it, and you think to yourself, that's not my life at all. Twice a week. I'd be happy with twice a month. Because last year, I don't know if we had sex twice at all. So let me change the slide. The average married couple over 30 has sex 58 times a year, a little over once a week. About 15%, that's approximately one in seven of married couples have not had sex with their spouse in the last six months to one year. 
Now, it might be uncomfortable for you to talk about this with your spouse. And you might be sitting there going, I want to have more sex. And you might be thinking, uh, the other partner might think, I don't know if I can do this. You need to talk about it. If you are married and you haven't been talking about your sex life, today's the day to do it. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexual intimacy is a radically important part of the marriage relationship. Listen closely. I am not saying that this is okay. But if you are withholding sex from your partner, your partner is going to be very tempted to go to pornography or to somebody else and to find it elsewhere. Again, I am not saying that's an okay response, but it's likely to happen. To the non-married people in the room, whether you're single, you're dating, you're widowed, you're divorced, our culture tells us that sex is the pinnacle of human achievement. This is what you should pursue. This is what you should go after. This is what's most important. Jesus was single. The apostle Paul was single. Multiple people in the Old Testament are single. Paul writes again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that if you are not married and you are thinking, man, all I want is to have more sex, sex is not the pinnacle of life, something better is coming. C.S. Lewis, you might be familiar with his name, I be, uh, has this illustration where he talks to a 10-year-old. Ha- uh, he says, imagine a 10-year-old is having chocolate. And the 10-year-old is going, oh, this chocolate is the best thing ever. And he says, that child has no idea how great sex is. Now, imagine you're thinking there's got to be something that I just, I want more and more sex. And God is saying, as great as I've made that to be, there is something better coming on the other side of glory. Shifting gears now, if we're looking at what the Bible says about sex and we talk about sexual purity, we also need to talk about sexual immorality. And a quick uh, summary of what I said earlier, I cannot tackle everything. And I strongly encourage you as I dance among the minefield in just a moment, that if you have questions, journey with somebody, journey with another couple, journey with a mature Christian who's of the same sex that you are and ask them about what is going on and what is taking place. And if you have questions about the LGBTQ group, say to one another, "Um, I need to learn. I want to grow in understanding. So if this is our definition, that sex is saved for a husband and wife in a loving monogamous marriage relationship, what does that mean for the LGBTQ community? What do we do. Imagine a road with two ditches on either side. I don't have any slides for this, but I do have alliteration, so hopefully you remember. For the history of the church, the biggest ditch has been abandonment. And if you are a homosexual, and if you are transgender, if you are part of the LGBTQ community, the church for years has said, enough, we don't want to have anything to do with you. This 
is wrong and it is a ditch. But the pendulum has swung to the other side. And the other ditch is the affirming church. And to say, you know what, for years the church has been wrong. For 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 years, Christianity has not understood it. We have now come to a sexual revolution, and we understand that sexuality is fine for everybody. We affirm you, whatever your choice is. And there's some churches, you'll see them um, fly the, the, um, the rainbow flag and others to say, at this church, everything is okay. You can even be in leadership, perhaps even our priest or pastor. Listen, this is also wrong. The middle of the road, where I believe Ellerslie is, and I believe is biblically, historically correct, is that we are an accepting church. We want everybody to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, whatever your sexual orientation is. Now, we have had people reach out to us and say, we're a homosexual couple, we're um, a transgender individual, And we would like you, we want to know that you are affirming us when we come to your church. Ellerslie, we will not affirm that. Now, you might agree with me. You might disagree with me. That is the stance of our church. We are an accepting church that people might come to hear the good news of Jesus. Now, there's a number of questions surrounding that, like, um, like, well, what do we do then with the LGBTQ community? How are they going to respond? I would be lying if I said I had multiple friends in the LGBTQ community. I have probably a half dozen. And overwhelmingly, they say to me, Dave, thank you for treating us with love. We don't agree with your stance, but we understand where you're coming from. Now, there's going to be people in this room, and there's going to be people in the LGBTQ community who hate that stance, and that's okay, and we will live with it. Our job is to show them what love looks like. So what are two of some of the biggest questions? There's multiple questions. A big shout out to Abby, our female youth pastor. She said, Dave, here's an article with 15 questions surrounding what do we do as LGBTQ? I want to tackle the biggest two in my opinion. In Romans chapter 1, verse 27, we read this. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with each other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I apologize, I don't have a slide. The question behind this is, wasn't first century um, sex exploitive? If you don't know quite what I mean by that, um, uh, isn't it men having sex with kids? The word for that is pederasty. Wasn't it men abusing their power um, with other men? Wasn't it men basically raping other men? And so the question is, isn't the biblical view an exploitive one? The answer is no, it is not. In the first century, the, uh, the New Testament is written entirely in Greek. First century Greek had words for rape and pederasty. They are chosen not to be used by the Apostle Paul. In the first century, we know not only from biblical context, but from historical context, that there were multiple homosexual relationships, and that was normal. Paul is saying that from Leviticus chapter 18, all throughout the scriptures, we continue to stand with the biblical historical definition of marriage. but what about the really tough one? How can it be wrong if I'm born this way? For those of you unfamiliar with the nature versus nurture argument, the big question that's been going on for at least two decades and really been looked at over the last 15 to 20 years is nature, was I born this way? Nurture, was it because of the people that I hang out with and spend time with? How can it be wrong if I was born this way? 
the American Psychological Association. No findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles in regards to sexual orientation. Well, I think it's important to listen to our LGBTQ friends, to hear their heartache and to cry with them and to weep with them. We must also stand firm in our own convictions. If it's okay to act a certain way because we were born that way, what do we do um, when we have physical, mental, and emotional traits that don't align with God's will? Some people are naturally more angry and violent. Does that mean it's okay for them to reach out and hurt people whenever they want? Some people lie, cheat, and steal. Do we condone that sort of behavior? We do not. We are an accepting church but we cannot affirm that level of sexuality. In all these things, I cannot stress enough the importance of strong Christian community. And if you're not involved in a small group, if you don't have a wise Christian mentor to talk to, if you are struggling and you're saying, Dave, I have same-sex attraction, I don't know who to talk to, please reach out to us. Reach out to mature Christian people in the congregation or elsewhere that you can have a friendship with and say, this is the things that I'm wrestling with. There's so much more that I want to say, but we need to move on for better or for worse. So I'm going to go back to sexual immorality as a whole. And I believe one of the reasons that scripture talks so much about this is because it's such an obvious sin. I mentioned earlier, there's at least five times in the New Testament where multiple sins are listed. The only sin in all of those lists is sexual immorality. Galatians chapter five, the acts of the sinful nature, he rattles off about 15 here, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Can we see all of those sins listed? Maybe. But when a teenage girl walks into a building pregnant, you know, oh, something took place. Leviticus 11.44 says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy as I am holy. The word holy means to be set apart, that we are supposed to look different. And I think one of the reasons God says this so regularly throughout the scriptures, again, 40 times in the New Testament alone, is he says, church family, I want you to look different than the world around you. So let's get really practical for a moment. Some of you in this room, are sleeping around. Some of you in this room are living with someone who isn't your spouse. What do you do? And again, love is the greatest apologetic. I hope you feel the love when I talk about this. You need to stop having sex. If you're living with somebody who isn't your spouse, you need to ask the question, do I see myself marrying this person or is this relationship going nowhere? If you see yourself marrying this person, come and talk to one of the pastors on staff. We would love to walk you through what the next step might be. It is a long journey. If you're thinking to yourself, there's no way I'm marrying this person. Stop by um, first step, stop having sex. And then get together again. You've heard me say this at least a half dozen times now with a strong, mature Christian and say, what? do I do next? 
Some of you in this room are struggling with pornography and it's becoming a real issue and you know it's an issue. And if you're already married, it's probably affecting your marriage. If you're not married, it will impact your marriage. Writing to a young pastor, the apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter five, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. If we are looking at pornography regularly, if you look at somebody older than you, you're not looking at them as a mother or an older sister. You're looking at them sexually and it will ruin your marriage. You might be looking at somebody younger than you and not looking at them as a younger sister or even a daughter or a niece. You're looking at them sexually and it will ruin your future marriage. We have groups in our church walking people through um, challenges with pornography. Reach out to us. There's one place where I think the church has done a, a poor job in culture. And I think that's in dating relationships. I think we're really good, whether it's at youth group or young adults, and we say something like, you know what, um, no sex before marriage, otherwise figure it out on your own. We've missed the boat. The Song of Solomon says this three times, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, I wish I had more time, and maybe in the next year or two, we'll have a whole series unpacking these ideas. But the, um, the Solomon, the wisest man outside of Jesus who ever lived, says, do not arouse or awaken love until it desires. If you are in a dating relationship, stop the heavy petting. Make sure all your clothes stay on. And truthfully, don't kiss so much. If you're engaged, I think you can go a little bit further. But again, all your clothes stay on. My friends, this is big. We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart. Where do we go from here? Sexual purity, sexual immorality, sexual conversations. I'm going to go through this really quick. Worship team, you can come up and join me on the platform. At the beginning of the, uh, the sermon, I said I wanted to do three things. I wanted to strengthen your faith. I hope I did that by looking at four different passages of scripture. Um, I wanted to unpack a couple implications of what does that look like and give you some tools as to how do I talk with my friends, my coworkers, my family members about things in regards to sexuality. Three things for the note takers in the room. Remember a biblical passage. It might be a little bit difficult to be like, was that Mark 10? Was that Matthew 10? I already forgot. Um, Hebrews 13, I'm not going to remember that. John chapter 4 is the famous story of the woman at the well. 1 Corinthians 5 to 7 is a large chunk of scripture. If you can kind of commit that to memory, not even the story itself, just John 4, 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, you can pull it off of your phone. Second thing, sex is better and more frequent in marriage. Sometimes um, Christians find themselves on the defensive and people say like, oh, the Bible is super restrictive about sex. What do you say to that? I, I don't know. One line. You know what? There's been multiple studies done. None of the studies I referenced were done by Christians. They were done by universities. Sex is better and more frequent in marriage. The third one might surprise you a little bit. Point people to Jesus, not to sex. So most of the time, someone will come up to me and say, hey, Dave, is homosexuality a sin? It's almost always somebody part of the LGBTQ community, and they want to get mad at me or get mad at the church. Dave, is homosexuality a sin? Don't answer the question. And you might look at me and be like, you just spent 35 minutes unpacking that with us. Yes, this room online, according to our survey from last year, is 95% Christian, 5% seekers and um, finding out who Jesus is. Are they coming up to you and saying, hey, do you give 10 plus percent to the church? Because I'd like to just randomly start giving 500 bucks a month. 
I doubt it because they're not Christian. Do they come up to you and say, I want to get baptized at your church? No, they don't because they're not Christian. And we so quickly identify with our sexuality and that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is Jesus. And so we point people to Jesus because think about how beautiful this is. Throughout the canon of scripture, we are given over and over again the beautiful imagery of, the, of Jesus and the church. Jesus, the groom, standing at the front of the church in perfection. He looks sharp. His beard is perfect. <laughs> and then comes the bride, the church, me and you. We've got some stains on our dress. And it's a little bit wrinkled. And it's off-white. And we enter those doors. And Jesus says three words. You are perfect. And boom, everything changes. And we are dressed in glory. And we get to spend eternity in a wedding feast with our great and glorious king who loves us. That's the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for hard questions. Thank you for hard conversations. May people know that we are Christians by our love. And may we be reminded that in the midst of a culture that is very different in certain areas in the churches, that we have the privilege of showing them you, that we are little Christs. We are your ambassadors in this world, pointing them to the great and incredible person of Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.